Hello and welcome back, Transplant Pharmacy community, to the latest episode of the mTOR You Know podcast, the new podcast produced by your own ACCP, IMTR, PRN, New Practitioner Council. My name is John Lyons, and I'm actually joined by our incoming ACCP, IMTR, PRN chair, Alicia Lickvar, as we present to you our research roundtable, a long-anticipated, long-time-coming joint podcast between the New Practitioner Council as well as research committee. We have an absolutely jam-packed research roundtable for y'all today as we discuss the challenges, trials, tribulations, and most importantly, joys of transplant pharmacy research with an absolutely star-studded cast. We're joined by Katie McMurray from Michigan Medicine, our 2019 IMTR PRN research grant recipient, as well as the dynamic research duo from the University of Wisconsin, Jillian Foss and Mae Jorgensen, who most recently, among numerous, and when I say numerous, I mean numerous other research projects and publications were lead authors on the recently published critically timely review of alternatives to IR tacrolimus in light of the shortage, a publication endorsed by the IMTR PRN. And finally, we're joined by the queen of transplant pharmacy research herself, the one who not only has been a role model for so many of us, but continues to show us how pharmacokinetic study, industry clinical trial, as well as clinical transplant pharmacy research in general is is done, the one, the only Rita Alloway of the University of Cincinnati. I speak for all of us when I say I am so excited to be sharing this roundtable discussion with y'all today, but clearly that is already way too much for me. So let's get going on our research roundtable. All right. Welcome, everybody, to our um, our research crossover episode. Um, I'm joined by my co-host, Alicia Lickfar. Uh, we're joined by Rita Alloway, Jillian Fos, May Jorgensen, and Katie McMurray. Um, uh, we're very, very uh, happy and, and ecstatic to be having everybody join us today. So thank you so much uh, for your time. I'm going to turn it over to Alicia, who's going to start off with our roundtable. Hi, everybody. Um, so just like John said, this is kind of a brainchild between both the new practitioner committee and also the research committee. Um, I think one of the ways that our PRN really shines is in the breadth and the scope of research that we're able to get on. So it's so cool and amazing to see um, people who are on the committee, May and Jill with me, Katie, and then my own um, old program director, Rita. So to kind of get things kind of rolling, there's a lot of paths that can lead us down the road to clinical research. So I'm kind of interested to see how you kind of all found your your own way. So um, kind of to start off with Rita, how did you um, find your way into the realm of clinical transplant research? Um, thank you, Alicia. I think that because my experience is so broad in terms of number of years, it's a lot different than the new practitioners today. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not have the benefit of a um, pharmacy residency or a pharmacy fellowship of any sort or really the Masters of Clinical Research programs that were out there to teach me initially. So um, I relied primarily on getting a very strong clinical background as it relates to transplantation to understand how to design research studies for the future. I think that anybody who is a good clinician and who asks relevant questions can be a good clinical researcher. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go into the clinical environment and realize what's working and what's not working. What turns you into a researcher, in my opinion, is when you um, look at that topic, search the literature, Um, to understand what is already published and out there about that. And then I think we all as pharmacists have been trained to criticize the literature. And if we can criticize the literature, that also means that we should be most well equipped to design a good study going forward that doesn't have those limitations. So you review the literature, you understand what's out there, You understand if the question has been asked and answered appropriately or not before. You, um, if it hasn't, which I'm assuming it hasn't, or you wouldn't be having the problem. You design going forward um, a logical sequence of studies to to look into that problem. So it can initially start out as just a um, 
retrospective review of what's going on with related to that problem and you define your current situation. And when you do that, you begin to understand what are the data collection tools that you need and what are the variables that you're going to monitor and how to or collect and how to collect them in the most granular way that you can analyze them the best going forward. So it takes steps in that process to understand how you can improve. You know, if you do a retrospective study and then it comes time for you to analyze your data and you say, oh my gosh, I didn't collect this or I didn't collect this in the right way, you learn going forward. So then once you've done your retrospective analysis, you take the next step forward. You want to do a prospective um, um, study asking something related to that same question. Whenever you do a prospective study, you want to add as many quality parameters as we all know, randomized control, you know, double blind, um, that we can to make that an effective study going forward. And then you refine your data collection tools, you refine your data analysis, and it begins, it begins that way. And I think that the main take-home point is I think that number one, you need to have a strong clinical practice. And number two, the study that you do or you start out doing is not going to be the be-all, end-all. It's going to begin your logical sequence of studies in that topic area as you proceed. Yeah. I mean, I think that's at the core such a great summary of what all of us are trying to do in very different ways. I always, so I now think of things in terms of driving around Chicago. That's my current analogy for everything. So I think of research as a lot like driving on Lower Wacker. If you've ever driven in that mm-hmm. Chicago's underground tunnel highway, it's as someone that did not grow up in the city, it's scary. Um, but it's a lot, clinical research is a lot like that. There's a lot of different exits you can take off that highway. You're going to end up in very different parts of the city, but you're still driving around town. Um, so to kind of flip over to, to Katie, you know, being the most junior um, on the, the panel of our, our researchers, how did you find your path? I know you come from, from really great training stock down in Barnes-Jewish. Yeah. Thank you. Actually, so I was a little bit different in regards to my research background. I actually started in research as an undergrad doing bench science at University of Missouri, and I took a non-direct path into pharmacy. I actually worked in R&D, like bench science, like genetics. I worked in drought-resistant crop species for Monsanto. And then I ended up working prior to going back to pharmacy school, I did SHRNA viruses and I designed them for companies like Pfizer and um, Johnson and Johnson. And it's kind of like, what is the basis for oncolytic viruses now? Mm-hmm. What we use for melanoma. So I've been in research for a while, but I think what Rita says is really great because mm-hmm. there's such a division between that bench science and what makes you a clinical researcher. So um, whenever I started going into clinical research, it happened a little bit more during pharmacy school. Um, They have different programs now. And I think that this is a great opportunity to talk about, like, there's so many things that are out there for pharmacy students, for residents that you, like, I didn't even know were even a possibility for me whenever I started pharmacy school. So even NIH offers TL1 grants that gives um, students an opportunity to go in and start doing translational research. And I started with the Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. So like that is one thing that I don't think it's advertised enough is the amount of opportunities to do research as a pharmacy student, as a resident. And then I agree, like once I started at Barnes as a student, I got a really good opportunity to work with Dan Brennan and Tim Horvadel who have great clinical practices and showed me what it was really like to balance a clinical practice and then start doing research on top of it. So I agree 100% with Rita that having that balance between the two, they kind of build off of each other. And I didn't realize that whenever I was a bench scientist, because it's not like that. But when you start doing clinical research, you have to have both in order to really be truly a strong candidate. So even though I took an indirect path, I think it kind of still ended up in the same spot. So yeah, I was very fortunate to have good mentors that showed me that there were different opportunities and that there were different pathways for, you know, for students and residents to get experience, which I was really, really thankful for. 
awesome. I did not know that about the Masanto. That's like, that's so cool, Katie. Like, <laughs> well, some I people no don't idea. really like it because they think of Agent yeah. Orange. <laughs> uh, but like the having that like bench component as someone that didn't have that as the component of their undergrad, I really feel like, you know, you kind of misstep and having that component, you know, and then continuing on and blossoming out is like a fantastic story for like a new practitioner to really listen to that these things that you can get involved in in pharmacy school really have a meeting. And even though you don't understand what having that research experience gives you at the time, mm -hmm. I'm sure like now that you're 10, five years removed from that, it means so much more. Oh, um, for sure. It teaches you like when you do science like that, it kind of, it kind of, everything kind of comes together towards the end because when I was doing bench science, the main thing you take away is how to see the forest for the trees. Like the details are super important. The granular work you do every day and making sure that you do that is so important, but knowing the big picture of why you're doing certain things, why you're working on drought resistant crop species, why you're doing things for patients that kind of really helps like that kind of research helped me kind of step back and see like the whole picture. Mm -hmm. So it does help. You're exactly right. Like everything kind of adds together and builds on each other. Yeah. Sorry, Rita was. <laughs> I'd like to add a comment to that because I think Katie brings up something that's beautiful. Um, um, her understanding of bench research will allow her to, within the center that she is in, build upon a more translational research program that goes bed to bench or bench to bed. And um, I think that that's very, very important. And it's only been later in my career, as I've had more exposure to bench research and more translational exposure, that I've understood the value of that and um, just as detail oriented and process oriented as we are on the clinical research side, it's the same or more on the translational side. And um, I think that's a huge skill set that should not be devalued. And I think that recognizing being able to cross talk with the basic mm -hmm. scientists within your mm -hmm. program is huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. So kind of like switching gears, I wanted to kind of ask a, a different kind of question, just kind of given background. So to kind of start off with May and Jillian, you know, based on, you know, your research trajectory and backgrounds, you know, what rookie mistakes, Jill, have, have you encountered in your research practice and how did you kind of go about overcoming them when you first got started out um, doing your own, own work and own projects? Um, I guess one of the biggest things is, maybe towards the end of your project, like the rejection that you might face. So um, I have a couple of papers when I first started that never got published. Um, you get through your whole project and then you get to the end and somebody tells you that it's not good, you know, and so then I think it's really easy to give up when you first start writing. So if you don't have someone that is there to kind of help keep pushing. And so May, um, I'll enter her in because she and I work on a lot of these projects together and she is very driven to, to completion. And so... Mm -hmm. Um, together we've kind of found that reviewers aren't necessarily saying no, they're just helping you think about something in a different way. So that would be one thing I would say is as you're working on your project and you get feedback, you know, don't take it to mean that, you know, the project's done, it's not going anywhere, but instead look at it as an opportunity to improve your project, things that you maybe didn't look at. Um, and then, I don't know, some other roadblocks or things that I guess that I've faced along the way. Um, not meeting with your statistician in the beginning. So I think that's maybe something you learn along the way too, is if you're able to loop in the statistician in the beginning, when you're first uh, working on your project idea, they're able to give you a lot of value and save you time so that you don't do things that need to be undone because they tell you like statistically it's not sound or there's a better way to go about looking at a process or a project. Um, so that'd be another thing. What about you, May? I'll, I'll loop in May. May and I always work on yeah. all these together, so... What are our roadblocks? Well, we don't we don't have a lot of time, so I would say yeah. that that yeah. is the most challenging aspect. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you've got like your clinical practice, mm -hmm. and they don't really carve out a lot of um, you know research mm -hmm. dedicated time. So you have to find creative ways to do it, <laughs> either or at home. Um, yeah. So, but the it's so interesting, you know, to even if the thing you're researching is like a very small niche of a niche, it's still something that maybe nobody has ever 
discovered before. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that, like, um, you know, trying to discover something despite Mm -hmm. having, you know, worked in clinical practice for over 10 years. And like, you Mm -hmm. kind of feel like it's the same thing over and over, you know, but Mm -hmm. that, that is the thing that can keep you, you know, driven when you're feeling like, oh, you know, this is, (laughs) this paper has been rejected at, you know, four different journals. (laughs) Like (laughs) clearly nobody is interested. And then you're like, no, it's got to have a home. No paper left behind. This project is important. We'll convince somebody, you know, and you got to call on all your, you know, friends that, you know, people you work with Mm -hmm. who maybe have like connections Mm -hmm. here or there or could read the paper, you know, maybe give Mm -hmm. it an open. But, but I agree with Jillian, you know, that is the most important thing. Like don't give up Mm -hmm. because, you know, the viewers are, are, they're there to, you know, pick apart what you've done and you know every time you submit a paper and get reviews back then you learn something from the process just like Rita was saying you know Mm -hmm. um these research roles are not born you're created and you grow you know yeah so when you're working on your your research sometimes after hours sometimes burning the midnight oil sometimes burning the early morning oil um, for you, May, what kind of keeps you motivated to to really keep chasing that carrot and really to keep pushing the needle forward? Well, I mean, you can ask Jillian, but I have a really hard time giving up on anything. Like, even, a, you know, you go through like the seven stages of grief, like, how could they? This is the best. Oh, I hate this. This is stupid. Why did I even do that? But then at the end, you're like, well, I spent a lot of time on it. And I really do still think it's important. Like, oh, well, I'll just answer their like, you know, 150 (laughs) questions and have like a 10 page letter of reviewer responses. Um, But I do think like that, um, you know, delving into this small little piece of unknown that you're finding out for the first time, like one of the questions on your sheet was, you know, what's your favorite part of the research project process? (laughs) And I think, you know, my favorite part is the part that is the shortest, which is like, you set up the study, you met with your statistician, you, you collected the data, you know, you worked with the data and then they run the data and you finally get the results. And that is like Christmas morning. You know, you're like, I had this question. I spent a lot of time thinking about how the best way to Mm -hmm. investigate it would be. And then this is the answer. And like, sometimes, you know, usually it's like wrapped up in some crazy SAS report that you like can't even read. And you have to meet with the statistician again to figure out what it even says. And then, you know, you're putting it into a table one and you're like, whoa, why is that? You know, why did it turn out that way? And you have to figure that out. But, and then, you know, that's over in like maybe two weeks, you know, Yeah. but still the best part. Oh my goodness. The, the Christmas morning, um, is I think perfectly describes like when I run stats on a project for the first time. Um, I know that I'll, I'll do a quick fellowship story. When we ran our results from best, like the original, like the, the, um, micro RNA stuff. And we kind of, like, I nerd out about it. I have, a, like, I'll drink a lot of coffee. I'll get really excited. I'll, it's Christmas morning. And to see like, even like, you know, seasoned clinical researchers like Dr. Boodle have the same like, wow, I like, I didn't expect it to do that. And then it it just creates more questions. I, I agree with you totally. That's, that's my favorite part also. Um, Rita, what, what keeps you motivated? Like what keeps you in the game at, at this point? You know, you've done so much, you know, you, I mean, we've been in that office at three o'clock in the morning to get into a midnight Pacific time ATC submission. What keeps you in the game um, when it comes to research when things get tough? Well, this is going to sound very maternal, but basically hearing stories and seeing stories from, from you guys. And I truly, I truly mean that. Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. The second thing I want to feed off of, of what Margaret said or May said, um, you're going to get tired of dosing to chromus levels for the rest of your life. That's not going to keep you going. Doing something like this keeps you going because there is, I mean, you would think if I've been studying tacrolimus for 30 something years, I'd know everything there is to know about it. But the fact of the matter is, is we don't, there's still things to study and, and learn. And I think 
that's the thing that keeps me going. But uh, I don't want to miss uh, what May said. I think no paper left behind should be yeah. the tagline for this podcast and <laughs> or however you do podcasts. But I think that's the greatest. I'm going to so use that one, yeah. May. So use that one. Yeah, I think we found our title there for sure. Yeah, uh, no paper left behind, behind. I think that brings brings up, you know, a great kind of follow-up point and, and even kind of into, a, you know, one of our next questions is, you know, no paper left behind is probably, I would say, the theme of, um, or a paper left behind is a very common theme of residency trainees, um, unfortunately, PGY-1, PGY-2. Um, you know, and thinking about, you know, yourself as a trainee and kind of getting into a new practitioner and a seasoned practitioner, what would y'all say um, is your, is, would you say the most common thing that you see uh, in terms of, you know, we talked about personal roadblocks, but roadblocks for, for trainees, what are the most common mistakes that y'all mm-hmm. see? Um, we'll start with May um, and, and, you know, the, the originator of No Paper Left Behind and, and uh, see what the group thinks about that. So I actually, I was thinking about this this morning while I was like thinking about this uh, podcast. And, um, you know, when I was a resident, I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't really think my research project was that interesting. It wasn't the part of residency that I was really like interested in participating in, I guess. I mean, I did it because I, it's expected of you and, you know, I have a hard, I don't give up on anything, but, but really, um, I think the issue is that you have to really care about what you're looking into. You know, it's the whole process is a lot more challenging if it's somebody else's project that they care about and you don't understand like, you know, why it's important or like, you know, what, how is it going to benefit or what, you know, happened before that led to it. I would say, you know, hundred percent of the projects that Jillian and I have worked on are things that we were like, this is weird. Like, why is this, you know, and that's why they're so like, they don't follow really a common theme. There are things that we came across. Mm -hmm. I guess a lot of them are about um, CMV, but that's mainly because that is like one of those questions in transplant that like the virus doesn't follow any rules. It seems to act totally different in every single person. So, you know, it leads us to be like, why is this? We want to find it out because this will help us to then, you know, fix this problem for patients. But when you're a resident, you don't really know what the problems are for patients because you haven't experienced, you know, a lot of, yeah, experience in taking care of them or the issues that they face. So I think maybe if you were someone like Katie who had experience doing a lot of different things before, you could use that to like have a question that you wanted to answer, but you really have to care. So I find with our residents, you know, when we had, we had a PGY2 last year working on a project with us, like the whole year, I'm like, you really have to care. Like, this is really important. Once I convinced her that, you know, and did care about it, then she was like, you know, working on the project while she was moving back to Oregon and like doing her HIPAA training so that she could get on the IRB, like on the road. So that is the key. If you can make them care, they will, you know, put their heart and soul in it. It's funny that you referenced me because I would say like when we, when I was looking at biggest rookie or biggest mistake, it was that my residency project got left behind. So I am maybe not the, the, the gold star for this one, but it, it's funny because I've actually recircled to it a lot, but some of the, I think like what's hard when you take on those projects, you're right. You don't understand the impact all the time. And also you you don't know, I think sometimes you don't feel like you have ownership in certain ways that you, like you said, like you don't feel like it's your project, your, your baby a little bit. And so I think that now that I've become a new practitioner, I'm recircling back to it because now I feel that ownership over it a little bit more. I feel like it is my project. I do have a responsibility to it. Um, Sometimes those projects are so hard to like also carry with you because it's almost like you're adopting all this new responsibility of your new center, your new projects, you're beholden to that. So I think it's, um, 
it's important to still feel like it's yours. And I, I think that's what carries you through a little bit more mm-hmm. with it. So it's funny that you brought me up because I was like, man, that was my <laughs> biggest regret. But I'm glad that I'm actually going back to it because you're right. Every project that for some reason it has some kernel of you know, scientific curiosity and it has a reason of why you're doing it. So it really does resonate with you a little bit more when you, when it's there and you understand it. And when it's your project, when you feel like you have a responsibility to carry it to your readers and to answer that question for others. hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point um, about ownership of the project. I do think that we have a huge, huge responsibility um, as practitioners and, and as really, you know, people that are, are training young minds to really kind of get excited. I feel like our trainees aren't excited unless we're excited. Um, you know, it's one thing if you're presenting like a center, speci- really center specific incidents, outcomes at BK, and you're like, well, we haven't done it in a while, so we kind of got to do it. So here's a BK project. You know, you could present it that way, or you could say like, okay, well, we've been starting to use, you know, leflunamide a lot, you know, not great data, but, you know, let's think about, you know, what, we, what we're looking at at our center, you know, center specific, maybe we can find something, maybe we can provide something for the literature. I really think how we present our projects to trainees, um, and, as well as new practitioners alike, um, you know, really, really can help with that motivational stage as well as, you know, motivating them to really take ownership of that project, Mm -hmm. carry it with them, and make sure that that paper's not left behind, um, you know, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better phrase. Um, You know, I do think one thing, especially for myself as as a newer Mm -hmm. practitioner, that I found was, um, you know, something I really didn't think about um, is is kind of what resources I had um, at my center. Um, So, you know, uh, going through, I guess, Katie, with you being kind of our, our, uh, our newest practitioner, what kind of resources did you find when you started at your new institution um, that really helped you get into your research as well as excel your research? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question because everywhere I've been, I've never been, it's, you always have to find someone that tells you these resources. So for instance, like the grant, I was a recipient of the ACCP grant this year for research. And one of the resources that I didn't even know was available at the University of Michigan is they have a whole department that's dedicated to patient education and health literacy, which I had never been exposed to before. And um, I didn't, and then also having the grant available. And then on top of it, they have, I never had a statistician before. They have a whole statistician department. Sometimes these resources, depending on where you are, aren't available to you. And then on top of it, they have a whole resource department within the pharmacy school that helps you manage that grant and that financial aspect, which can be very daunting for a new practitioner to to get because you're like, what do I do with it? How do I manage this money? How do I allocate it? Things like that. So I think the biggest thing that I did in order to learn resources is one, I sought out a mentor, which was Jamie Park. And then two, I also like, yeah. (laughs) So um, the other thing is whenever I was seeing like random, you know, research symposiums, auditoriums, things like that start to fill up with research that's outside of our field, like even in stroke research or patient education with eye drops or asthma inhalers, I would always just kind of go and listen while I was doing patient care stuff too. Because you learn about all these resources through ancillary, you know, through these ancillary um, opportunities. And I think that using those opportunities and those resources in a creative way that could be tied into your project is, it's a huge, it's, it's big because I never thought that that would be possible for me is to have a department that was completely dedicated to making patient resources or, you know, a whole department that's, um, made to make patient education surveys. Like I never thought that was even a possibility. So I think that just making sure that you're aware and that you're keeping your ears open, that you have a mentor that's seasoned in the um, in the institution, that, that really helps. And then just also like listening to people like Rita or I was listening to Demetra from NYP, listening to their different experiences. Those will spark things to go look for as well, like different resources to look for that maybe even be outside of your institution. Yeah, that's kind of something that uh, now moving from Pitt to where I was training uh, to, to Cincinnati, where I was at for two years, now to UIC, they each have their own resources for re- like 
research and stats and, you know, different patient resources and and things that you have at your fingertips. I I think having the experience of, you know, what have I seen at other places helps guide kind of the questions that I need to be asking at at the centers that I, that I step into. Um, For, for you, Jillian, I was, um, I know that we were chatting a little bit this morning about, you know, your team, you know, Wisconsin is one of, you know, when you think of research groups um, and teams, there's, to me, Wisconsin is honestly like second to none. Um, Dan Felix might have biased me. Uh, Melissa might have biased me. But I, when I think of your team, I really hold that to be a gold standard team. Um, when you have that many people working on, on research projects, how do you corral your team, Jillian? How do you, you know, amongst your group, you know, kind of delineate research tasks and make sure everybody has a piece of the pie that, that they might want? Um, I mean, I guess a lot of communication. So, you know, we oftentimes will meet, you know, just as a pharmacist and then meet with the um, provider that's going to be on the paper project and then try and come up with even just like a outline and kind of divide it up. Who's going to do what part, who is going to be more invested. A lot of times May and I will have multiple papers going on. So one of us will lead one, one of us leads the other and kind of shepherds like that paper along um, with helping out as we go. I think one of the keys is that um, nobody gets upset with someone else, like trying to feel like they didn't do enough or that person is doing more. We kind of just pitch in where we can, as May alluded to in the beginning, you know, at our model at University of Wisconsin, there's no dedicated project time. So if uh, May has a day that she can work on part of the paper, she just works on it. And then when I come in the next day and have time, I just work on it. And we've worked together long enough that we're able to kind of pick up the pieces from one person to the next. And with Dan getting more involved, you know, he's Mm -hmm. trying to kind of do the same, like start navigating a paper. Um, But I think just teamwork is really the key and then communication to make sure that all the pieces are in place, who's going to do what um, to keep it moving forward. But I think it just takes time and practice and patience to really get a good system down that works for you. I don't know that we have like a magic, magic answer. Now, it sounds like, you know, you guys have been working together closely for many, many, many years. Um, How did you guys establish that system? You know, was it something that came organically? Was it something that um, you guys had to kind of get buy-in for? How did you navigate those first initial years? Uh, Well, I'll give my opinion and then they can jump in. But um, for those who don't know, we both went to Michigan and her brother was in my class. But so when we both came to Wisconsin at the same time, um, she was coming as a pharmacist and I was coming as a resident and we both knew each other, but we didn't know a lot else. And we started helping each other right off from the beginning um, as pharmacists at Wisconsin. And I think that just played over into our working on projects together. So um, we kind of just developed teamwork just in general, working as clinical pharmacists. Um, and then it just, you know, would it grew upon that, like, she had kids before I did. So then maybe I had more time to work on papers. Now I'm in the period of having kids, she has more time to work on papers. But we always would just communicate and ask each other's opinions, say, hey, I worked on this part, you know, when you have time, you jump in and work on that part. So I think it really just grew organically from working together as clinical pharmacists, um, holding each other accountable, but not being, you know, upset or pointing fingers and just kind of having a common goal that we were working towards. And then that grew into research and helped each other along the way. We'll see what May thinks though. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I would say, I think, I mean, we did try before at our institution to, uh, or at least on our team to do like co-preceptors, right? And Jillian and I have like co-preceptored students and residents for, you know, 10 years. And in my opinion, we're like really good at it, right? Because she's awesome. And so I can trust that like, she's doing her, I don't need to be on her to be like, oh, do this, do that. You know, she knows when I'm there, I'm, and there's no like, um, there's no competition for like, who's really the lead, you know, who's the, the one in charge. So then when we tried to roll it out to the rest of our team, like it failed miserably because nobody else could be a co-preceptor with the other one without like trying to take the lead. So I think that is the same with our research. Like she's a good writer and maybe she thinks I'm a good writer. I don't know. But we both have like very high standards, you know, but we just happen to like 
match each other's high standards. <laughs> and then, you know, she, we also like, um, I would say emphasize each other's strengths and weaknesses. So like Jillian is very good at looking at the primary objective. Like, what are you really trying to figure out here? I know you're pissed about this and like so-and-so said this, but like, what is the big picture here? And she always like can pull you out of the weeds back to the primary objective, which is actually like harder to do than it seems, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I will never give up. So like, mm -hmm. you know, we have all kinds of problems with it. The data is bad. We have to rerun the stats. Like, mm -hmm. well, I'll keep doing it, you know? And then we get back to it, writing the paper and, you know, we each have our, our side that we help each mm -hmm. other do. So right. I don't know. It was like just gibberish, but no. <laughs> you know, we have our strengths and weaknesses and I think we complement each other in that way. So you can try, but you have to have like mutual um, respect and, you know, trust in your co-researcher. Cause if you don't, it just, yeah. you know, devolves into somebody doing the whole project and the other person like, either not caring enough or not putting in the effort, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the key. <laughs> yeah. I, I think trust is, I mean, for me, one of the cornerstones that, that I think of when I think of co-investigators, I mean, I, I think I've had, you know, I can't even count how many positive role models, but I think, you know, working in a team too, you, you guys also have this component of how do I mentor my colleagues? How do I mentor my teammates? How do I get, everybody on the team to, to have that um, buy-in or how do I gain that trust with maybe somebody I haven't been working with as long or a new practitioner that comes onto the team. So how do you guys go about, you know, navigating, uh, you know, almost mentoring, you know, your peers? I'll, um, I'll, I'll start with Rita and then I would, you know, love to hear what, what Jillian and, and you may as well, you know, working with the larger team and Katie at Michigan also I think you guys can all kind of answer this. Well, I think that it's important. Um, one of the philosophies that you hear me talk about is that clinical research needs to be embedded within the clinical practice or it can't be successful. So I think pharmacists are uniquely positioned um, being, at, it, being embedded within the clinical team and being a liaison. There was a colleague of mine that looked at all the nodes of email um, communications and various communications um, within the transplant team, and they easily found out that overwhelmingly the pharmacist node was the most dense because they had the most communication with different members of the team. So I say all that to say this, if anytime you have a new team member come on board, the pharmacist is going to have that communication with them, and they're going to establish that professional um, collegial um, bond with them. And I think that sooner rather than later, it's important to take the time out and say, hey, you know, have a formal meeting, sit them down, say, these are all the things that we have going on. If, as long as, as, as May and Jillian said, as long as it's a big pie, it's a lot easier to give different people pieces of that pie and everybody sharing the success. So, um, I think you can't do everything, but you can do one thing really well, and you can divide the pieces of that pie evenly amongst a large group of people. And um, people are going to, you're going to have the group of patients that they just want to, I mean, the group of providers that just want to know what's going on, but don't let it interfere with their practice. Then you're going to have the ones that want to know what's going on and understand it, but they don't want to put in the extra work to write a paper or to to um, be a PI themselves. And then you've got the third group who wants to go all in and really, you know, take ownership of a project and move on from there. And I think it, it behooves um, all of us as mentors kind of um, going back to, to or, or preceptors going back to some of the earlier comments that we need to provide a project to our trainees that is relevant, mm -hmm. that they can be interested in. And, um, and I have to appreciate having had, unfortunately, many papers left behind that one year to get a significant pa uh, paper done that's a project that's interesting and relevant is a short period of time. And you have to stay invested in that, in that paper 
as she said, till it gets published. And um, there's none quite as, as good as Alicia to have done that, that have, have trained here. You can't, um, you know, it's not going to just be over when your year is over. So keeping people engaged, letting them be a, you know, a part of the active team and um, sharing the pie, I think is the best way to keep people around you motivated. I have many cover your ass meetings, not yeah. CYA for cyclosporin, but CYA <laughs> cover your ass meetings that basically are formed for no other purpose to say, okay, if you want to know everything that's going on in research, you can come to this meeting and we will make team decisions. If you, if you're not coming to these meetings, you don't, you don't have a say. Yeah, that was uh, honestly, your research meetings were something that, um, you know, or a level of transparency that I hadn't seen in my very beginnings of practice when I was there as a fellow. And that's something that for me going to UIC was something, you know, we tried, you know, Patty and I tried really hard to establish within our own pharmacy group is like every quarter, even if we have nothing to say, we're going to all sit and we're going to talk about what projects we have going on because we're going to, you know, have updates to some degree and then it's going to just kind of lead to better conversations and more transparency. Um, Jillian, uh, May, any, any things to, to kind of add when you think about, you know, getting that buy-in from your team or how you go about mentoring, you know, newer members of your team into your research fold? I think one of the keys, um, or things that can be difficult when you're mentoring young people is realizing what they don't realize and realizing you have to let them make their own mistakes. Um, so I think mentoring, you know, as, as clinicians that have done this before, it's easy for us to say, like, let me fix that for you. Like that part was bad. I'll just rewrite it. Um, but it really is better for the resident, you know, if you can give them feedback or the, the new practitioner and like walk them through the process of how you got there. Um, so I think that's one of the things that, you know, I try and do to help set them up so that down the road, if you want to do it yourself, you know how to do it. You know, it's like the old adage, like you can give a man a fish or you can teach him how to fish. And a lot of times we're so busy, it's easier just to do it yourself, but it's not really helping out the new practitioners or the new clinicians if you're, if you're doing that. Um, so I think really trying to help set them up is one of the things that I try and do um, by kind of showing them, you know, who the statisticians are, like, how do you find them? How do you find them out? These are the meetings you have to go to to present the data and things like that. Um, so I think that's one of the th things I try and do. I don't know if that really answered your question. Yeah. Or if I was just no. droning on. No, it does. I, I mean, something that, you know, having a stats background, having done my master's kind of throughout fellowship and going into a program where you had these great research minds, this great work, this UIC is just very novel practice and trying to kind of see, get that research lay of the land. For me, like having that statistical background, it was just a lot of listening my first year. And I think that taught me a lot about what I can give people that come after me and then, you know, what I can give to even people that are more seasoned and what I can learn myself. Um, you're not going to know everything after, you know, even if you have, you know, an, a, a level of, of a niche of, of a research uh, expertise, you know, for example, knowing how to program, um, you're, you can learn something from, from anyone regardless of their level of research. So I think like telling our residents that, you know, reinforcing that there's no stupid questions that we're going to be here to have a conversation puts everybody's guard down. And I've always, you know, once that guards down, you're able to have those really meaningful conversations. Um, Katie, for you, when you've gotten involved more in research at the university of Michigan, how did you get buy-in from your surgeons that you were also a research go-to, you know? I think that's a really great question, but I think it, it starts with your, again, it goes back to your clinical practice. They have to trust your clinical acumen to some degree in your mind and that you're doing, you know, what's best for the patient. And they, they want to know that your overall goal of your project is adding back to patient care. Um, I think that's the biggest thing whenever I was getting buy-in is they wanted to know, like, what was my overall goal for the project? What did I, how did I see that fitting into our center? And at the time, it was really fortunate because they were going through a mission, vision, and values restructuring. So it meant 
so the project itself, like some of the projects we've come up with recently meet their end goals of being innovative, catering to patients, adding back to those mission, vision, and values goals. So they want to know that you're coming back to the patient and patient care. So again, it's just building on that clinical acumen. Um, So I would say that that's pretty much where it starts. I have a question myself, if that's okay, (laughs) asking my more seasoned um, um, colleagues. So you start with these little projects that you see going back to patient care, but when it starts from a little idea, like I think what's interesting is it was fortunate that you see it grow within certain grants or with different mentors, but how do you really get that project to grow more to a different level? Because some people like they do multi-center trials, like Mm -hmm. how do you get that growth and that collaboration outside of where you are, like from a, just a small idea, how do you guys get how do you get there? Because I think that's the logistics that some of the new practitioners were like, we want it to go there, but how do we get there, I guess? You want me to share my trade secrets? We're going to have to kill yeah. you all. I think we would love to. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. There's a lot of different ways, but one way is maximizing your expertise as a pharmacist and your understanding of pharmacokinetics. So if you can get involved in phase two trials early that are pharmacokinetic focused and provide value and insight for that, you do a good job, you enroll a lot of patients, you, um, you um, collect quality data, then you're automatically in the study for being a, a study site in phase three. So you go in phase three, you're, again, maximizing your enrollment, giving, giving them quality data, um, um, under-promising, I mean, underselling and over-delivering is very, very important. And what you end up seeing is that limitations of, of regulatory bodies um, result in drugs getting approved in transplantation in phase three that are not the way that it's likely going to be used in clinical practice. So the companies are then left with the decision of, okay, do, does the FDA force us to do post-marketing studies? Are we going to invest our money in some innovative phase, phase four studies? If we're going to do innovative phase four studies, are we going to do, you know, one bigger study that say maybe I can be the PI of a multi-site study on, or are we going to just you know, spread 10, 20, $30,000 here, there, and yonder. So every company has the different philosophy on that. But you start out by trying to um, develop those relationships, show you can deliver. And then what ends up happening is what I tell all the people that train with me, you have more experience than almost anybody in the world in terms of using this agent, new agent. Therefore, you should be able to know how to use it well and how to use it appropriately and what the um, the holes in the literature going further are going to be. So, for example, I think the transplant literature, everything that's out there right now in terms of patient survival, graft survival, DSA formation, all of those types of things, infectious complications is going to be totally rewritten with co-stimulation becomes a major factor. And I think that that should be looked at as new practitioners as a huge opportunity. You know, um, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to, to find a good paper that's written before and redo it, but redo it well so that it's quality with a different agent or whatever. So I think that that's the main thing. I, um, I know things are changing, but, but I think developing relationships within industry is very, very important. Because, and, and, and like I said, there, the world is full of people who can um, come up with this $10 million study that's absolutely the perfect be-all, end-all study, but it's too expensive and it's logistically impossible to do. So where we come in as pharmacists is we look at what the study is we want to do, how logistically can we implement it and make it doable and give quality data. Um, you can talk to all of your colleagues in industry to see that the industry is littered with investigator-sponsored studies that were never completed. 
And if you show that you will get that grant and you will do it and you will complete it, you'll, you'll go far. Um, I think going back to what Katie said, looking within your own institution to figure out what the resources are there, there are more resources that are there available to you than you think. One of my problems historically was I would see a 10 or 20 or $30,000 grant and I would just automatically think, well, that's not maybe that much money and, and there's going to be multiple other people going for it. Why waste my time? But that was wrong. And I, I tell people now going back, um, you need to apply for those things because it will, it will give you the ability to just start out learning how the funds flow, learning how I can implement those and use them and start again, building your logical sequence of studies. And um, I, I can't, that seems so simple for me to say out loud, but, but each study leads to the next, leads to the next. And when you say within a target area, it's not, it's not like you're reinventing the wheel every time you start doing another study. You're just adding to what you built, the program that you built, the infrastructure that you built, et cetera. Um, hey, Rita. So yes. I wanted to what you said because all that money sounds very overwhelming, maybe, if you're just starting out. But I, playing devil's advocate, I would say it's great to be smart and it's nice to be pretty, but all you really have to be is productive. And as long as you actually do things, you will get all kinds of opportunities. People will look to you and be like, oh yeah, that girl. Well, she's really productive. She gets things done, I guess. I mean, we could have her come, you know, be part of the group. At least we know someone will finish it, you know? And maybe that's not the most attractive way to be involved in research, but it is... There's a lot of people that are, there are a lot of people that are a lot smarter than I am, but there's not many people that can outwork me. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good trait or not. I'm still, I'm sitting here wondering if that's a good trait or not, telling you that I've been doing it for this long and I left last night at eight o'clock, but I don't know that that's a good trait, but it is a trait. Yeah. That reminds me, I was, I was reading um, the Angela Duckworth book, Grit. And she has that quote that it, that reminds me so much of what you just said, Rita, where it's like, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but if I'm the grittiest person in the room, I know that I'm going to get stuff done. And I think that that's something that I think really pulls a lot of us forward in terms of our research practice, thinking about no paper left behind and thinking about what it takes to be you know productive when it's hard. I think you know, you gotta be, you gotta be gritty to get stuff done nowadays. It's not, things aren't handed to you. So I think that really echoed with me when you said that. I wish we could be talking for another hour, hour and a half. I think this has been probably one of the one of the best research conversations I've had in a long time. And it pains me to say, I think we're out of time, everybody. Um, I wanted to thank all y'all so much for taking the time out of your day. I know that getting everybody together and finding a, you know, an hour throughout the day to, to have a conversation and, and, you know, provide your expertise to, to us and to the transplant community, transplant pharmacy community um, is, uh, is, is, I can't thank y'all enough. So Rita, May, Jillian, Katie, thank y'all so much. Uh, and uh, I think from, from that, um, you know, no paper left behind. No paper left behind. No paper left behind. Yeah, love it.